the Oasis Church podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's reading is from Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. What what do you rejoice in? What do you rejoice in? I had a friend growing up who rejoiced in hubcaps that had fallen off of cars and onto the side of the road. Uh, His name was Timmy Lewis, and he had hundreds of these things in his collection, in his shed. And to be honest, his joy at these things was pretty infectious. It got to the point that when I was walking home from college, if I came across a hubcap on the end of the road, I too would skip away with joy because I could give this to Timmy Lou. And I know he, he loved these things. Hubcap happiness. It's a thing. Maybe not for you. But what do you rejoice in? A common theme throughout the letter to the Philippians is the theme of rejoicing. Again and again, Paul says to them, rejoice. But never does he say, just rejoice in general. He does not say, always look on the bright side of life. Paul knows, as well as anyone, that life circumstances do not always afford a reason to rejoice in and of themselves, nor do we always feel happy. Remember, Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians 
while under arrest. He's facing massive uncertainty. At any moment, he might be beaten or flogged or fined or executed. So no, when Paul says rejoice, he fixes that command to a specific location. Rejoice in something, in someone. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord. Whatever is happening in life, however high you feel, however low you feel, rejoice in the Lord. And here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, we're told to make a practice of rejoicing in him as a safeguard for your faith. It's like a defense. It's a shield. It protects your faith to rejoice in the Lord. So it's not just a good idea. It's essential. Why? And how do we do that? And I want us just to look at three things. First of all, rejoicing in the Lord as our confidence, rejoicing in the Lord as our treasure, and rejoicing in the Lord as our ambition. Our confidence, our treasure, our ambition. First of all, rejoicing in the Lord as your confidence. Paul says, watch out for those dogs. Now, just to be clear, being called a dog is not a compliment here. Okay? Um, at university, my housemate Matt would sometimes call me a dog, and he'd mean it as a good thing. He'd sometimes say, Mike, you dog, and he'd mean that I'd done something mildly impressive, like come home from Aldi with some cut price cake or something like that. <laughs> no, it didn't take much to please him. But in Greco-Roman culture, dogs were despised and considered a pest. And in Jewish culture, they were considered unclean, to be avoided. So you do not want to be called a dog. Kind of the, the equivalent today might be to say, watch out for those rats. Don't go near them. So who are these people that Paul calls dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh? Well, he's referring to a group of people who are teaching that Jesus is not enough. People who are teaching that in order to be made right with God to be saved from your sins, to be included in the people of God, you need more than Jesus. You, you also need to keep the law of Moses, especially to be circumcised. That's what these Greek believers in Philippi were hearing. And Paul seems to think that this teaching is so dangerous that he ramps up the language. Dogs. Now, it is vitally important at this moment to make something crystal clear. These verses in Philippians 3 are not expressing any kind of anti-Jewish sentiment at all. At this moment, as much as ever, we need to underline that crystal clear, highlight it. The Bible is really clear that salvation is from the Jews John chapter 4, verse 22. And Jesus is the Jewish Messiah enthroned in heaven, fully God, fully man, fully Jewish, the saviour of the world, both Jew, Greek, Palestinian, British. And in Romans chapters 9 to 11, Paul spells out in great detail his love for Israel and his unwavering hope for the Jewish people. So these strong words are not anti-Jewish, but they are anti the suggestion that when it comes to being right with God, Jesus is not enough. Because 
Any such suggestion, if you believe it, is a prison that will keep you bound up in fear, feeling insecure, missing the gift of God. So in response to the teachers saying that the Philippian Christians need to be circumcised, Paul says, no, no, we who trust in Jesus are the truly circumcised. What's all that about? In fact, what is circumcision about? I imagine every boy who first reads about it in the Bible may look like the chap who's on the screen now. (laughs) What? What's going on there? But actually, in his letters in the New Testament, Paul has a lot to say about circumcision. It comes up again and again and again. So actually, we need to understand it if we're going to track with him. So what we're going to do now is just think a bit about the role that circumcision plays in the big story of the Bible. Okay? This will not be thorough. It will be brief. But it is important. So please track with me. We're going to do a bit of theology together. Now, throughout the Bible, we see that God always has spoken promises to humanity through physical signs. Okay? Think about the rainbow that appeared after the flood through which Noah and his household were saved. The rainbow was a sign that spoke to humanity. Never again will the earth experience that. Circumcision is another sign that communicates a promise from God. It was first given to Abraham. And it was a sign of the promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God promises that Abraham will have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky. Have you ever seen how many stars there are in the sky outside of Birmingham? uncountable, overwhelming. And that's the point. That's the whole point. The blessing would be beyond measure. Countless numbers would be drawn into the promise attached to Abraham's offspring, his seed. And so the sign of this great promise is applied to the organ that produces the seed, hence circumcision. The foreskin of baby boys cut off when they are eight days old. And in that way, the promise echoed from generation to generation to generation. The sign saying, the promise is alive. The promised one is coming. The seed of Abraham. And circumcision was, of course, also a bloody cutting off. Removing the foreskin represented removal of uncleanness. But it was not just a hygiene thing. Even today, people are circumcised for medical reasons. But this was a sign pointing to a greater reality. God's people, and indeed all humanity, needed a deeper uncleanness to be dealt with. Our problem is a heart problem. We are curved in on ourselves and away from God, making ourselves the center of everything and pushing God away. And if you push God away, then you push away life and light and goodness. This is what the Bible calls sin. That's our, that's our problem. 
And it shows itself in all the self-centered and destructive patterns of behavior and thinking and desires that we see in the world around us and, if we're honest, inside ourselves as well. Our problem is a heart problem. So David prays in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And so several times in Scripture, God speaks about our need for a circumcision of the heart. It's picture language. It's a metaphor. The removal of the uncleanness of our sin. And so in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So the physical sign of circumcision pointed ahead to the promised one, Abraham's seed, yet to come, who would deal with the uncleanness of our hearts through a bloody cutting off so as to bless the furthest reaches of the world. And what Paul wants the Philippians to know is that the promise communicated in the sign of circumcision is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the one that the sign is all about. Jesus has come. He is the seed of Abraham, the promised one. He has perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses in his life. And he is the suffering servant prophesied in the book of Isaiah. He has been crucified. A bloody cutting off for our sin to remove it from us as far as east is from west. He is risen. New life he brings. He is enough. Full stop. And so as Romans 10 verse 4 puts it, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. To all who believe. Believe the promise. Christ is for you. Therefore, we no longer circumcise our eight-day-old baby boys in anticipation of the coming seed. Rather, we baptise men and women, boys and girls, young and old, into Jesus Christ, the promised one who has come. And we baptise them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For all of God's promises are found in him. He has come. That's the promise. So baptism also is a sign that speaks. It says, you are joined to Jesus, joined to him in his death, joined to him in his resurrection, a new creation, washed clean completely, filled with the Holy Spirit, belonging to the Father. It's a wonderful thing. It says all of that. And so baptism replaces circumcision as a sign of the same promise given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, received by faith. Have you been baptized? If you'd like to be, we'd love to talk to you. So do you see why it was so important for the Philippians not to take on the message of the false teachers? Nothing needs adding to what Jesus has done. He is enough. The Philippian believers are to rejoice in him as their confidence. Lean on him alone. He has done it. It is finished. And it is, as Adrian already prayed, it is ever the work of the Holy Spirit to turn our eyes to Jesus, to see who he is and what he's done. 
which is why Paul says, we who worship in the Spirit, glory in Christ, and put no confidence in our effort. This, that's the circumcision. It's the work of the Spirit. And then Paul says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Jesus plus anything else is so dangerous. It kills your faith. It robs you of your assurance before God. Because if you look even to a little bit of your own efforts or your own contribution, you will be forever wondering, have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I given enough? Have I believed enough? Am I enough? And to the voice inside that says, am I enough? It will only be silenced by the voice of the one who says, I am that I am. Jesus is enough. Full stop. When I was a young child, my brother and I slept in a bunk bed. And one of our favorite things to do was to climb onto the top bunk and call our dad up and to jump off the top bunk onto him. Yeah? So we would fling ourselves off and say, Daddy, catch me, catch me! Sometimes without much warning. And he always did, every time. The thing is, though, when we did that, we were most vulnerable if we tried to help him out with the catching. You know, if we put our arms or our legs in front of us to break our fall just in case, then that was the time when we were most likely to be in danger. What my brother Tim and I had to learn was that we were safest when we were just looking to dad, trusting in him to catch us. Oasis, rejoice in the Lord as your confidence. He will catch you. He is enough. What are you tempted to lean on as your confidence in your standing before God? We're, we're all of us vulnerable to something. I am. Maybe for you it's about your status, like Paul articulates. I was born in a Christian home. I'm a leader in the church. I'm well-respected. I had this experience. I prayed this prayer. Jesus plus those things. Or maybe you subtly lean upon the efforts that you're putting in, particularly compared to others. I pray more. I read the Bible more. I go to more meetings. Jesus plus that. All those things are good things, but none of them earn you any merit before God. Maybe you lean on what you have not done. I didn't mess up this week. I kept the rules. I was a good person. Do you ever slip into that? I do. I do. Paul says, be on your guard. That thinking is like kicking against the arms that are there to catch you. Rejoice in the Lord as your confidence. This is blessed assurance. Jesus is enough. Look to him. The next two points will be much briefer. Rejoice in the Lord as your confidence. Secondly, rejoice in the Lord as your treasure. Jesus is not only our confidence before God, he is the one who satisfies our deepest longings. Paul says here, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For Paul, you could name anything in the world that people consider to be desirable, and he would say, rubbish compared to Jesus. You name it, rubbish compared to Jesus. 
as human beings, we are so hungry for lasting satisfaction, aren't we? So hungry. Some of you will be old enough to remember the old Shredders advert that used to be on the TV. Okay, the, the advert went like this. Someone would wake up in the morning and they would have a bowl of cereals. Shredders is a bowl of cereal, but this person made the mistake of not having Shredders. And so before long, as they went about their day, this little hunger monster would come up and start drumming on their stomach. Boom, 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 boom. Hunger strikes. Because only shredders keep hunger locked up till lunch. Advertising is not wasted on me. I wonder if our hearts are sometimes, they feel like the little shredders monster is drumming away. So hungry. We hunger for so much. Human beings have hungry hearts. We hunger for truth that is solid. We hunger for peace that will last. We hunger for hope that won't fade. We hunger for pleasure that will nourish and not degrade us. We hunger for love that won't give up on us, no matter what. We hunger, we hunger, we hunger, and we may turn to any number of things to satisfy that hunger, and pretty soon, it's just a little drumming away. To this hunger, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. The North African theologian, Augustine, said, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. You were made for God. Nothing less than God will do. Nothing less than God will do for your hungers. So great are they for all that is good. And in him is all that is good. And this is the amazing thing. God has been given to you. He has been given to you freely and fully in Christ. And everything else is rubbish compared to knowing him. This is the heart of holiness. To reckon upon the fact that he is better than everything else. Sometimes worldly desires and pleasures, the pleasures of sin, they can look like candy floss, all pink and fluffy. Oh, that looks good. You put it in your mouth, pff, disintegrates. It's nothing. It leaves you with this sickly residue. I'm not a fan of candy floss. Jesus is the bread of life, satisfies our deepest longings. And the more you have of him, the more you want of him, and the more good it is. It's the heart of holiness. It's also the heart of evangelism is to rejoice in the Lord as your treasure. To, to say, I found a treasure worth selling everything for. Do you know, I, I wax lyrical about all sorts of things all the time to my friends. Films I've watched, holidays I've been on, food that I've had. I tell them about it and I recommend it. You should try it. That's evangelism. Come, oh, come and see what Jesus is like. Come and see. It starts with rejoicing in him. You will never do it unless you're convinced he is better than anything. Everything's rubbish compared to knowing him. It's the heart of holiness, the heart of evangelism. It's the heart of worship to rejoice in Jesus as your treasure. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. 
Rejoice in the Lord as your treasure. He is all that you want and he is given to you. And then lastly, rejoice in the Lord as your ambition. There is always more of him to know, more to see. Yeah, and sometimes the Holy Spirit, he, he does open our eyes and we see something new of Jesus in the scripture or in all sorts of different ways. And it's like that scene in Beauty and the Beast where she's taken into a room and it's all dark and all the, all, all the curtains are, are shut and she's a big reader and she's got a blindfold on and, and, and she takes it off and then and she, all, the, all, the, all the, uh, the curtains are opened and still she's closing her eyes and she can't see. And she turns her face towards the light and then suddenly it's now, look. Books everywhere, books, books, books. Wow, this is the most amazing thing ever. The Holy Spirit's like that. He's always wanting to show us more of Jesus that we might see. Oh, wow. It's who he is. To know him. Paul said, I want to know Christ. To know the power of his resurrection. The only way to journey through suffering is by knowing the power of his resurrection. Why? Because Jesus is risen. And the same spirit that raised him from the dead lives inside everyone who trusts in him. Which means that nothing can separate you from him. Which means that even suffering is a context for fellowship with him. That you might know him. And to be with him is so sweet, even in the most bitter pain. There's a line in a famous hymn that says, You're my best thought in the day or the night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. And I remember walking to medical school as a student and repeatedly praying that prayer out as I walked through campus. Lord, you're my best thought, but you're more than a thought. You're the living God. I need you. I want you. Please, can I have more of you? Because in those uni years, Jesus had really taken hold of me through much doubt and through much pain. I just knew so much of my need for him. It had taken hold of me and all I wanted was to take hold of him. And I still do. Because in verses 12 to 14 of the passage that was read out, Paul says, not that I've already obtained all of this, not that I've already been made perfect, and I want to confess, I have not obtained all of this, and I am so far from perfect. I am prone to Jesus and something for my confidence. Jesus and something for my treasure. Jesus and something for my ambition. I know I have a sin problem. So do you. But I also know that Jesus has taken hold of me. And he is enough. Full stop. Has he taken hold of you? How will you know? Well, you will know because you'll desire to take hold of him. Even as I've been speaking about him, you'll think, oh, I need him, I want him. Do you want him as your confidence? Do you want him as your treasure? Do you want him as your ambition? If the answer to that is yes, it's because he's taken hold of you. And so we're going to have an opportunity now to take hold of him in response. And we're going to do that as we take communion together. I'm going to ask Dave to come up now. Even as you're sat here, as you've heard more again about Jesus, about what it means to rejoice in the Lord, 
is after you've heard, you have thought, yeah, I want Jesus. Then I'm going to invite you to come and to take from the bread and take from the, from the juice and bring it back to your seat. And then we're going, to, we're going to partake in this together, okay? And then we're going to sing to him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your Son through whom we have adoption into your family. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. Thank you for the gift of these signs. Thank you for the bread and the juice which we can touch and taste and swallow down knowing that your promises are for us. Thank you that Jesus is enough, full stop. May our confidence be in him. May our treasure be him. May our ambition be to know him. And Lord, may we bring that to the world. Because this is good news for all people. We worship you, Lord. Amen.